Hello, I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. My father always wrote me off as, as a dreamer, so he didn't have much hope for me. My mother was always comparing me to her friend's sons who were doing well, so I had a bad time. <laughs> in this re-release of one of our most popular episodes, I speak with architect Frank Gehry. This episode was originally released in June 2016 as the first of four conversations we recorded about Frank's life and work. Frank Gehry cares deeply about Los Angeles. Over the almost 70 years that he's lived and worked here, he's changed and elevated the architectural profile of the city as perhaps only Frank Lloyd Wright or Richard Neutra before him. Today we'll explore Frank's earliest years in the city, his architectural training, friendship with artists, and breakthrough projects. We'll hear Frank's uncompromising view of this history, delivered in his own words, as only Frank can. What follows is an edited version of a longer conversation we had over lunch in his studio. Frank, thanks so much for your time and your interest in this podcast project. So today I want to talk to you about your early L.A. experiences and how it was that you came to establish your architecture studio and what effect L.A. had on your studio practice, if any. You were born in Toronto and you came to L.A., I think, in 1947, at age about 18. 17, 18, something like that. Tell us what brought you to L.A. and what were your first impressions of the city? Well, um, I I live in Toronto. My father was a salesman, quasi-business, but he wasn't very successful. And he had a a serious heart attack at 49. Whatever he had, he lost financially, and he was kind of broke. His brother, his older brother, was moving his family to L.A., from Detroit, and it was a time where when people got sick, they bring them to softer climate. So, Big Brother said, "I'm going to take care of you. Come with me to California, and you'll feel better." Which he did, and we were all excited. And he rented an apartment. My mother and sister came out earlier. I think I was finishing my schoolwork my year. And I had to stay there to finish it. I got on the train and came to L.A. Picked me up at Union Station. The blaring sun. I mean, everything was just like, wow. <laughs> and where was the family living then? It was Corner Burlington and Ninth. The building's still there. It was an old apartment building, probably the 20s, with uh, wrought iron elevator cages Mm, and things like that but it was run down it wasn't spiffy the apartment was two rooms and a little kitchen one bathroom there were sliding doors between the rooms so you could open it all up so one was a living room one was a bedroom and they had the old pull down wall beds oh yeah murphy bed and so there was one of those in each room so parents stayed in one and the other one I got, and my kid sister got the couch. And it was tight. <laughs> yeah, sounds like Tight it. quarters. I got a job working for a relative in the San Fernando Valley. She had a furniture company, and we would 
he was selling kitchen furniture, like tables and chairs and chrome. And so I was delivering those. But sometime not long after that, you got into USC. And I remember you saying to me once that you can't imagine how your parents could afford sending you to USC. (laughs) They didn't. (laughs) I was a truck driver. I was going to night school. I had my cousin, who was the uh, son of the brother that brought my father out. And they had money, so he had a convertible, and he joined a fraternity at SC, and he was like a college boy at those days with the Bobby Soxers. He always included me in all his stuff. He would always drag me down there. So I took a class in ceramics. Yeah, with Glenn Lukens. Glenn, yeah. The first year I was doing just ceramics. The second, I stayed on with him and as his assistant, so I didn't have to pay tuition. And during that period, he was building a house by Soriano. Yeah, Raphael Soriano. Yeah. Was Soriano the first architect you'd met that was a practicing architect? Probably. I went to see the house under construction. Soriano was there. He had a black beret, black shirt, black everything. Broken nose. He's from the Isle of Rhodes. And he was telling the steel guys, put this here and put that here and put that here. And I guess Glenn saw the light in my eyes. I was enjoying it. And when we got back, he said, uh, you know, I got a hunch. I think we should enroll you in a class in architecture. There's a night school class on Monday nights at SC. So my first building that I did looked like Soriano. <laughs> I think what happened is um, during that period, I met Arnold Schreier. He was working at Lloyd Wright Studio, and he would, on weekends, go out looking at the houses by eminent architects in the city. And I used to go with him. And somehow he met Julius Shulman, the great photographer of modernist right. architecture, yeah. And would drag me along and. Somehow we got invited to dinner to Julius's house, which was a Soriano house. Uh-huh. And somehow at those dinners, Craig Elwood and his then wife, an actress, Gloria Henry, would come. And uh, somehow we all became friends. <laughs> what did your parents think about your interest in architecture? They think, well, there's a future there. You'll yeah. make some money. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be My okay. father always wrote me off as, as a dreamer, never to be seen in you know, one of those. And um, so he didn't have much hope for me. My mother was always comparing me to her friend's sons who were doing well. So I had a bad time. (laughs) I never measured up. Although she took me to museums and took me to concerts. She's the one that got me into all of that back in Canada. So back to USC and, and these guys. What about Greg Walsh? Greg came along when I got into second year architecture. Greg was curious about buildings, so and he knew Arnold Schreier, and we would search out every Schindler house, every Wright house, every everything, and drove people nuts. We'd knock on doors, all the things people do to me, and I can't stand it. I did meet Schindler and could call him. He was great, and when I got into the regular class at SC, he would come and lecture. And he was a typical hippie. He had uh, sackcloth shirts. And I mean, he really fit the story. 
I was taken by him pretty much because it felt real. It felt human. It didn't feel contrived somehow. My Neutra story is a sad one. When I graduated, I wanted to go work for him because they were involved with social stuff. So I went for an interview with Richard himself. I took my thesis. I was married by then. I had a child. So I went to meet Neutra, and he looked it through it. He was very friendly. And he says, ah, start Monday. I said, fine. And he got up to leave, and I said, Mr. Neuter, shouldn't we discuss um, the financial stuff? He said, oh, don't worry. They'll tell you how much you have to pay on Monday. You have to pay. Mm. (laughs) I didn't say anything, but I never went back. (laughs) (laughs) So, But it was about that time that Victor Gruen Associates offered you a job. Is that right? Maybe a summer job? Edgardo Contini was in my fourth year. So I just out of Straub, fourth year, Edgardo's teaching. He's an engineer. He was Victor's partner, became Victor's partner. And they were doing social housing. And I did a project for something, but it was a riff on the the Neutra Schindler house uh-huh. with the concrete panels. Right, I right, took right. that idea and built something with it. And Contini thought it was brilliant and blah, blah, blah. And so they hired me for the summer. And then when I graduated, I went to work there. But you get drafted into the Army. It's like 1955. What happened is I was very interested in flying. And when I was a truck driver, I had a cousin who had a Waco airplane. And I used to go out on weekends and fly with him, biplane. And then on weekends, I got made extra money by washing people's planes. So when I got into SC, I joined ROTC. I figured if you have to go in the Army anyway, because that time everybody had to go, uh, that I wanted to go in the Air Force. And three months before graduation, the uh, colonel or whatever he was called me in and said, Frank, there's been a terrible mistake made. You never were accepted into the ARROTC, which meant I was back into the draft so I got drafted. And you went to Fort Ord. Fort Ord. And they asked me if I could uh, help them. They needed a, some field desks and equipment that went in the field on maneuvers. And they gave me a list of stuff. Is there anything you could do to help us? With to this? design them. To design them. So I designed everything. And I designed a field latrine. It was like a little square that you sat on. The back had two pipes that went up with canvas. It looked like a Frank Lloyd Wright thing. (laughs) And I had it going both ways, so there were two latrines with this thing in between. Back to back? Back to back. And I made models for them, and they loved it. I made desks, and they'd never seen shit like this, you know, so. Did they put it to use? I mean, was it put in practice? I think so. I think so, but... At the same time, I'd met Al Trevino. Al Trevino was a Harvard graduate and landscape architect who then went to work with Irvine. And Al said he's doing the general's gardens for him at his house. They're getting ready to do a big uh, day room remodeling thing for Third Army, and they need an architect. He said they think they need decorators, but they really need... He said, uh, would you 
be interested? I said, sure. Anyway, long story short, Al put in a request for me to go up there. I did go up. I met the general. He said, well, you're not a decorator. I need a decorator. And I said, well, I can do what you want. I went home, made a model of a day room, worked all night over a weekend and showed it to him. And he said, okay. And then he put in the request for me and it Boom, it worked. So this is about three years after college? I mean, is, uh, you're about 25 or so? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And a young a married man and a young father? Yeah, father. So how long did you stay in the Army? 21 months. At that time, they'd give you three months early to discharge if you go back to school. And that's why I went to Harvard. Ekbo and Simon Eisner were the planning guys. They knew my politics and everything. They knew I didn't want to do rich guy houses, so they said, you should be in city planning. City planning was run by Reg Isaacs at that time. And so I applied, got accepted to city planning. But at some point, you figured out or they figured out you were the the wrong guy in the wrong place. I figured out. What happened is we were doing a master plan for Worcester. Worcester, Mass. Mass, in the planning. Master plan for my class was an economic planning structure of the city, you know, was nothing that wasn't I... Wasn't designing anything. Wasn't designing yeah. And I started the presentation of this master plan for Worcester, and Charles Elliott III stopped me and said, Mr. Gary, this has nothing to do with the class I gave. Please sit down. <laughs> and I was so angry. So I waited for him. Class is over. I saw him go up into his he, his uh, office was at Robinson Hall. It was like a ship's ladder and a door at the bottom. It looked like you were going to the captain's. I knocked on the door. Yes, I opened the door. There's Charles Lawton standing at the top of the steps looking at me, and I start screaming at him. You can't do this to somebody. This is outrageous to embarrass me in front of Sir to make me feel like nothing. I unloaded. By the time I was finished, there was a crowd around me. And I told him to go fuck himself, and I slammed the door. <laughs> and I walked out. <laughs> I then went to see Cert and told him, look, probably my own fault. I got in the wrong pew. Can you transfer me to Urban Design? He said, uh, you will have to apply again. I said, you know, I'm married, have kids. He said, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Can you imagine that? It was cold-blooded. They were really cold-blooded. So the only good thing is that Charles Lawton's assistant, Peter Nash, took me out for a drink, and he said, look, what you did was perfectly fine. He said, that guy was out of line doing that to a student. And Peter helped arrange a special card that I could go take any class I wanted, but no credit. Well, it was while you were there that uh, Pereira and Luckman, the L.A. firm, reached out to you. Is that right? Pereira and I were friends because he was my thesis advisor, and I got paid for doing the Mexican project. I mean, it wasn't a lot of money, but Bill Pereira was very impressed with that. Yeah. One of the planners in the office, Jack Bivash, came back to the Urban Design Conference and took me aside and said, Bill Pereira would like you to come back if you're coming back to L.A. to work in the office with him and be close to him, working with him. It's, it's a big opportunity. And so I said, 
God, that's great. I go to Pereira and start working with Bill. And the first thing he asked me to do is, he says, the hearse are giving up the castle. We're going to turn it into a public venue. And I'm going up to have dinner with the hearse, and I'd like you to come with me. And I looked at him and said, no way. (laughs) (laughs) So I said, please, I can't work on that one. So he put me on the airport. This is about 57 or so. Yeah. And you're, for the first time in three or four years, you're back in Los Angeles. Right. And Los Angeles must have been late 50s, post-war, booming like crazy. It was, yeah. And Pereira's office was booming. And I didn't fit Pereira's office. I fit him. If it was just Bill and me, I, we would have had a great time. The rest of the office was corporate. And at that time, Rudy called me, Bonfell. And I loved Rudy, and we were really close from way from the beginning. And he said, why aren't you here at at my office? And I said, well, Beta told me you didn't need anybody. He said, I want you here tomorrow. (laughs) So I went. (laughs) Was that your model for your sort of first model for what a studio practice would be like? I suppose, yeah. The architecture wasn't AAA great. And they were doing shopping centers, but they were doing social things too. And... Rudy was a great furniture designer. He was an art collector. You could talk to him about music and art. Yeah. Was there tension in your mind then between the big firm practice and the independent practice? No, I was committed to the big firm. I thought this was it. I was in the Holy Land. I loved Contini. I loved Victor. I loved everybody. They treated me very well. I worked very hard. I ended up having almost my own office within the office. I could do a shopping center over a weekend, and I was really fast, and they loved it. And I could write good letters, and I understood the contracts. I understood the whole thing. But you were pulled away. I mean, I was at a time where my marriage was dicey. I was drinking a lot. It was a time when people went out to lunch and had three martinis, the days where you'd work four hours in the morning or maybe you'd come in early and work till 12 or 1, you'd take a two-hour lunch, you'd come back a little fuzzy, and 3 o'clock you'd be back in it and you'd work till midnight, right? Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the culture. But then a friend from Harvard, a guy named Mark Bias, or yes. Bias, Bias, invited you to go to France. Anita had lived through SC, is your wife. Harvard, two kids, <laughs> and she always wanted to go to France. So it was her turn, right? And I was feeling like I should get out of Gruen. I wasn't going to make it there. And so a year before I left, I gave notice. I went into Rudy and told him, I'm buying tickets to go to Europe. And I know it's a year off, and I don't. I know this is stupid, but I love you, and I can't help. I got to tell you, that's what I'm doing. They never believed I was going to leave, and so they kept piling more and more on me. Three months before I'm leaving, they call me in. There's this huge new project somewhere, great project. I forget what it was. <laughs> you know, anybody give their anything to do it, and they assumed I would stay and I said no I can't and I stuck to my guns and I'm 
right down till the end, they almost never quite believed it. So you make your way across on the boat, and you make your way to France, and you get to France. Bias and his wife live in Moudon. They find me an apartment in their building. He had started his own office by then. I mean, it was rather menial work you were given. It wasn't great, challenging. No, work, we, it, it was. was uh, we were doing the master plan for Villa Cublay. That's the town that was uh, General de Gaulle's home. Mark Bias knew. Roselle, who was the most famous French planner alive. He was planning cities. Roselle had these planning projects that he asked us to do drawings for. So that was night work. I got a job with a, a French architect, Ramon Day, whose offices are on the Champs-Élysées. Um, Did you think you might stay for a very long time or stay forever? Was it that kind of a move or you knew it was going to be temporary? I liked it. I didn't have anything to come back to, so I was open. But they didn't pay much. I was getting four francs an hour. That was less than a buck. And we would miss one meal a week, my wife and I, would, so the kids could eat. And I would work four days a week, and I would take off Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, of course with the kids and with Mark. He had a Deschevaux, and we'd drive around, and they'd pull all the seats out of the Deschevaux, and we'd picnic. And, and you saw medieval? Went to um, Pont de Garde and everything. But the thing that he introduced me to that struck the chord was Autant. Because history of architecture when I was SC was kind of nothing. You know, we found the modernist. We're going ahead with that stuff. Let's, I'm not going to look at that anymore. And a lot of my friends who had the same experience, but when they got to Europe and saw Chart and Vesely and, and all these places, they went crazy yeah. and said, they felt betrayed by their teachers. Why didn't you tell me, you know? But then Victor Gruen comes over. So this goes on. This back, goes huh? on for a, not quite a year. I decided to, I had to go home. It was time. The very end of all this, I get a call from Victor. He's going to be in Paris. Do I have any time to spend with him? And I said, yeah, great. So he and his wife and I, my wife didn't come with me, got a picnic in Marley Loire, and we drank a lot and had a lot of fun talking about the old days. And he was staying at the Ritz. And he had a car, and so we drove back to the Ritz in his car, and we stopped. And this was goodbye, you know, and he said, you know, I'm retired from the office, and I'm getting ready to open an office in Paris, and I'd like you to be my partner. I looked at him. I couldn't. In the context of what had happened in my life at that point, that was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I couldn't do it. I thanked him and I said, I said, Victor, my, I don't know what to say, but I think the time has passed that I could accept that. You've had this sort of pattern of turning away from certain successes. Yeah, I do. To venturesome yeah. opportunities, of which this was one. So you come back to L.A. and with Greg, you opened your first practice? That no, I yours? started myself. 
So it wasn't yet uh, Frank Gehry. No, Walsh what happened is this guy, Wesley Bilson, who was married to the K Jewelers heiress, his brother, Wesley, who I sail with once in a while, was married to Anita's best friend in high school. Anita's my ex-wife. And he introduced me to his brother, who was with the K Jewelers thing, and his brother... He liked me. He somehow got excited about getting involved with architecture. And and so they got me the job to do K-Jewelers. And so that was my first job. And I did it myself. Greg wasn't involved at all. I did it at home. I got paid $2,000, I remember. And during that period, Wesley then said, why don't we find some land and build apartments? And I think... When I was in Europe, I got a call from Wesley. Or maybe it's before. It was before I went to Europe. Wesley and I looked at a little piece of land in Highland Avenue in Santa Monica and put the group together and bought it. And we were designing this apartment building with Ferry Dune Gaffari and I forget who else that went to school with us. And Greg was not involved. And so this was designed before I left Europe. And it became more and more clear that he was going to get the money to build it as I was coming back. So I had that to come back to. Uh Maybe that's why I felt comfortable quitting or something. But it was still speculation, right? You were going to develop the properties and sell them. Right. So we designed it via mail, (laughs) back and forth, I think. And then when I came back, we made it solid and we built it and rented it. And we were going to do a couple others that we never got further than this one. So th- does Greg come into the picture then? Because he's with you at the Danziger studio in 64. Yeah. But the Danziger project looks, you know, by everything I've seen, to have been a signature departure from everything you've done before. Oh, yeah. Principally, yeah. right? So what compelled that? At that very point, Lou Kahn had just, right? Mm-hmm. And we were all looking at the master. The kind of simple massing that he has, right. the concrete think, planes of Yeah, I walls. think. And if you look at the trajectory of studies we did, they got simpler and simpler. Lou hired Fred Usher to do the studio, and Fred brought it to me saying that he couldn't do it. Then Greg joined me. I see. And with that job, you get introduced to the whole artistic circle around that time through Ferris Gallery with Walter Hopps and Ed Keenholz and Ed Moses and Barbara and Billy Albanks and the whole gang. I mean, well, that it, happened because they were, they were came around and looked at the building. It wasn't that I went after them or anything. While I was working at Gruen, I did get involved with contemporary art. You know, I mean, I was always interested and saw a lot of the stuff that was going on. Ed Moses invited me to dinner and started talking to me about stuff and opened the door to Billy and Larry Bell. And, but it happened over time. It wasn't just like one day. But you found a community that Yeah, that I felt comfortable you. with them. Yeah. And I was enjoying the way they worked because it felt right to me. It felt like the right way to build things. They were free. They were doing their own stuff. And it was hands-on. It was very personal. 
and they liked what I was doing, which made it nice for me. I didn't know what they thought of me, really. I thought they were just nice guys. They were being friendly. I only found out recently that they were really impressed with me. <laughs> it makes me cry when I think of it, because I never knew it. And at the same time, the, the, the marriage is breaking up. Yeah. So the relationships that you had in place, you're giving up on those relationships as right. were. You're turning away from them. Right. And that moment, you were also embracing psychotherapy. I was had Milton psycho- Wexler, is that right? Yeah, I had gone to a shrink before, uh, a couple of them, different ones, about the marriage, and neither one of them was very successful. But Ed Moses dragged me to Milton, and that changed everything. To hear the other parts of this four-part series of interviews with Frank Gehry, visit getty.edu slash podcasts, where you can also find all of our past art and ideas podcast episodes, as well as access images, transcripts, and other resources. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Art and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music. Thanks for listening. <laughs>